the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's election day. What is the proper perspective as we watch the results tonight? And then we're joined by Dr. Kelly Flanagan to talk about his new book, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian from Aubrey. It's election day. Feels like a big day. Uh, the polls will be closing here I don't know, six, seven, eight o'clock, a couple hours here. Yep, a couple um, more hours to go. There is always a, just a, an interesting energy. Don't you feel it around Election Day when the, the morning news shows and you see people out and about? Feels feels like a little uh, like a like an important day, does it not? Yeah, there's a little buzz in the air, certainly a little anticipation and and maybe excitement as well, depending on I guess how your how your candidate is doing. But certainly there's a there's an energy in the air. My husband, Kevin Bryan, was asking me yesterday, hey, does it feel different? You and Brian both aren't from Chicago. Do midterms feel different here than they do in other places around the country? Because, you know, New Jersey, Oklahoma. Right, right. And I didn't know if that they do feel different. Like it feels way more inundated here. But I don't know if that's just like adulthood and elections in general. That's it. I see yeah, I've yeah. I haven't lived in New Jersey since I was, you know, 21 years old. So my right. guess is we you were probably the same, didn't spend a whole lot of time. Now, it does feel like, I mean, the last week or so, there's not one ad on TV that's not political. So I do feel like I That's do feel true. like it's ramped up and up and up. If I were guessing and I moved back to northern New Jersey tomorrow, yeah. or let's say I moved back last week, I'd probably be like, wow, there's a lot of political ads on right now. I think it's just <laughs> it's just the way that it is. It will be nice when it's over, though. That's for sure. Um, although I, I'm ready for some non-political ads, although we're going to move into a major political season. So I don't know how much of a breather we're going to get here. Are you prepared that uh, – he not so subtly, Donald Trump not so subtly hinted that next Tuesday he's announcing his candidacy. Are you oh, ready? <laughs> Brian, I did not hear this news. Tell me what happened. What happened? Oh, he was doing a rally, I believe, in Ohio uh, for one of the candidates there. And he said, be prepared on Tuesday, November 15th. There's a very important announcement coming at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> so oh, everyone's like, no. I think we know what that means. So. Uh, that will get us into two years of Trump, Biden, Ron DeSantis, all of it. Oh it's, it's, maybe it's, it's, two- maybe it's that it's that Kanye West is buying parlor. Maybe that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe all the world's colliding. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, so here's my question for you, Aubrey. Most people listening right now have probably already voted. Some are, might be leaving work and heading to the polls. Um, but here's the question. We as Christians, as we vote, you and I have been very clear, go vote. Voting's important. Go vote. Um, but I've also heard other people in my church or online be like, 
they they almost have a doomsday approach towards today. Like this is yeah. the most important election ever, which parenthetically they believe that until the next election. I know that's uh, so true, isn't it? And I know I don't have the article in front of me, but Christianity Today wrote an article last week literally titled, this is not the most important election of your lifetime. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, but let's speak to the people who maybe are high anxiety. Maybe they are high like this is the crux of everything. Everything hinges on what happens today. Uh, for the For the Christian, let's talk to that person who might be feeling that way. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to be dismissive here, but I think I, I, I don't want to be dismissive, but I want to say very boldly, that's a lie from the enemy to try to mm. get you off of trusting the sovereignty and goodness of God. And so I just wouldn't buy into that. Like, don't allow, don't allow fear mongering, don't allow anxiety, don't allow the enemy to get a stronghold in your life where it says, depending on how this election turns out, the world is either you know, ending or not ending, God is either good or not good. Like the reality is no matter who wins today, Proverbs talks about how the Lord has the power to change the minds of rulers, the way he can move a river. Like God mm -hmm. has authority over authority, period. And always has, always will. And I know that that doesn't mean they're shaky ground. I, I know that doesn't, you know, we're, we're in that already not yet. And so some things can feel difficult. I'm not saying don't let it, you know, it can feel difficult. But what I am saying is like, do not give into that lie. We, we know, you know, this is kind of a cliche, but we know how the story ends. We know, we know who's on the throne. We know who is the author of all history. Nothing is going to surprise God today and nothing is going to stop or thwart the work of God today. That's right. That's right. So we always say uh, we have a Lord, we have a King, and he's not on the ballot today. That's <laughs> he it. Is, That's it. Uh, you can write him very, in if you want to. <laughs> there you go. He is very much going to be on the throne tomorrow. So uh, what does that look like? It's a great thing to say we have a Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. Yeah, Let's yeah. talk about the Lordship of Jesus because we do live in America where we mm -hmm. vote for Congress, uh, vote for the Senate, vote for yeah. the House. We vote for president. We vote for governor today. All these state races and stuff. Yes. So we do have people. But what does it mean for you when we talk about actually living day to day under the Lordship of Jesus? Yeah, because what you don't want to hear, I mean, you know, so much of our faith is paradox, right? And so what you don't want to hear is me saying God is sovereign no matter what, therefore do nothing. Like as Christians, we're still called to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth. We're still called to live as people who um, practice covenant wisdom, covenant faithfulness, covenant justice. Like those things, again, have always been true and are still true today. Mm -hmm. So I, I think ultimately what it means is that our um, our hope ultimately is not in a political party. Our hope mm. ultimately is not in corrupt systems that try to run the earth right now. Now we can uh, partner with God to bring justice on earth, to bring flourishing and livelihood to our communities. I think that is part of the work that we do as followers of Jesus. But I feel like it's a posture, Brian, don't you? Where our, yeah. our ultimate, we lay our heads down at night knowing God is still good. God is still sovereign. God is still in control. All shall be well, rather than laying our heads on our pillow at night panicking because so-and-so did or didn't win. Yeah. I think most Christians get this, even who, even who are 
politically passionate, but sometimes we need that reminder. That's it. We need the reminder because we can, uh, none of us would ever, as Christ followers, I think, deny Jesus as Lord. But the question becomes, how do I live mm -hmm. with that posture that says, you know what, um, whether whether I the person I vote for wins or doesn't, whether you know the country goes in the direction I want it to or not, I can still trust that Christ is and always will be victorious, is and always yes. will be on the throne, uh, and and it it reminds us that we are living for someone bigger, but also for something bigger, right? A a different mission that's yeah. not just. Um, you know, the direction of the country or the, right, all of right. which are important. You and I love America, go vote, Amen. all of this yes. stuff. But, <laughs> uh, but I, here, Aubrey, I'll end it this way. I wonder if, if you ever do anything that is like this. I've gotten into the habit when I vote, like as I'm filling it out to just remind myself, Jesus is Lord. Like just mm, tell yourself good, when Ryan. you're in the poll, just good. tell yourself, maybe sing a song. People will be looking around like, where's that coming <laughs> from? <laughs> but uh, just this reminder that Jesus is Lord. So election day, enjoy staying up late, watching the results. Yeah, it'll be uh, fun. Get some popcorn. Get and some watch popcorn. It. Yeah, it'll be fun. But do it with a piece. Do it with a piece that yeah. says, hey, I don't have yeah. to wait for the results about Jesus. Right. Like, because right. he is on the throne. Well, Aubrey, coming up next, uh, the author of a new book, a novel called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, which debuted as a number one new release on Amazon. Amazing. Uh, his name is Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Uh, Kelly is going to join us next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Love to have people uh, guess on the show back again, yes. right? And so uh, this one is is interesting. We've had Dr. Kelly Flanagan on before, uh, talk about marriage, talk about you know mental health and stuff. But uh, he's just written his first no uh, fiction novel Amazing. called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, which debuted as a number one new release on Amazon. Congratulations, Kelly! Yeah, How you doing congrats. today, bud? Hey, thank you both. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So you and I were talking a little bit off air, but before we get into what the book is, uh, tell us how you got to this point, because you were saying this is your first foray into into fiction. So how did you tell us the road that got you here? Yeah, sure. Um, well, without getting too into the weeds of publishing, I had a two book contract with InterVarsity Press and I published the first book, True Companions. They were supposed, supposed to be both nonfiction books. Um, but the contract said before True Companions is released, we need you to pitch a second book for this contract. So I pitched a second book um, and they came back to me and said, you know, we think this concept would work better as fiction. Wow. And I've always wanted to write fiction. It's one of my great dreams to write a novel. Oh, cool. So, of course, it scared it scared the heck out of me. <laughs> and so I said to them, I think you don't understand what I'm talking about here. Let me revise it. And so I proposed it a second time as a nonfiction book. And they came back again and said, we think this would work better as fiction. Wow. Um, the nonfiction proposal was the idea that we sort of reached this point in our life where the same old ground that we've been treading isn't working for us anymore. Mm. And we recognize that there is a, a more graceful ground on the other side of this chasm. And there's, but there's this rickety bridge in between and we need guides to sort of lead us across that bridge to more graceful ground. Otherwise we're just going to sort of stay here doing the same thing, staying in the same pattern, the same defenses and that sort of thing. Um, and so what I proposed to them was a nonfiction book where the guides that walked us across that chasm to more graceful ground are the eight Beatitudes. Oh. Uh, and, oh. and I, yeah, and I suggested that those Beatitudes would be sort of 
loved ones from my life who I'm lost loved ones who I'm now interacting with in a dialogue, um, each one of them representing one of the Beatitudes. And that's when they said, you're too far afield from nonfiction now. You've got you to gotta write this as a novel. And, uh, and so that's what it became. Oh, that's so, that's such a fun process to learn about, Kelly. I, I, yeah, I can't imagine writing, writing a novel. So congratulations. That's so incredible. <laughs> um, so obviously uh, a lot of themes from your work as a therapist, your work as a writer are woven into this novel. Right. Talk to us a little bit about what your hope is for readers who are coming to this story. Mm, I just had one um, one reviewer on Amazon say, probably better than any nonfiction book I've ever read, um, this story helps me how to understand how to live a life of integrity. Um, mm. Because so, so much of us, and the, the feedback I've gotten from my book club and my launch team and, and early readers is, boy, I can relate to this. I'm aware of all of the ways that I sort of disconnect from my integrity by hiding in order to protect myself, in order to get the things that I want for beautiful reasons, like not wanting to hurt my people or not mm. wanting to go through a certain kind of pain. And so my hope is that this book, number one, reduces our sense of shame around the ways that we've hidden ourselves mm. away and how we've tucked ourselves away and just sort of gives us the inspiration, the encouragement, and the... Uh, the, the spiritual fortitude to sort of step out um, and, and start showing up authentically in our mm. lives as much as we can. That's great. So uh, Kelly, somewhere uh, in, in the press stuff, I read uh, it, it, Tuesdays with Maury mixed with the shack. <laughs> like those are some, I love Tuesdays yes. with Maury, by the way, give us it without giving the story away, maybe give us a glimpse into the actual story. What, what is yeah. the story that people are entering into here? Yeah. So Elijah um, falls in love with his beloved Rebecca, um, and we, we get a little bit of their backstory. And then the story picks up essentially on the day that Rebecca, and I won't ruin this, this is 10% into the book, um, the day that Rebecca decides to leave him because hmm. she's sort of fed up with all the hiding. She, she says basically, you know, I can be alone all by myself. Mm. Um, I'm tired of trying to pry the truth out of you. I know there's more going on inside of you that you're not telling me about in our lives that you're not telling me about. Um, and, uh, and the reader has a hint of it at that point, but the reader doesn't really know either. And so the night she leaves a recurring nightmare from his childhood, he starts to dream it again. Um, and it's this nightmare of trying to cross this rickety bridge over a swollen river in his, um, in, in his hometown of Bradford's Ferry, Illinois, which bears a very close resemblance to my beloved hometown of Dixon, Illinois. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so his therapist basically says, um, he tries to turn it into like a gimmick to write his next book, which he's got writer's block on. And his therapist says, no, 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 this isn't a gimmick. You need to go home back to Bradford's Ferry and deal with your, deal with your past, deal mm. with the pain that you've not been, been dealing with. And so he goes back to Bradford's Ferry and, uh, one of his great spiritual mentors in the town, Father Lou, uh, says, uh, you know, if you can't, if, if you're struggling to have a conversation with God, if you're struggling to hear the voice of God, it might be because God is actually just waiting to have a better conversation with you. And, uh, and maybe one of the ways that you can do that is visit the sort of thin places in this town where you have fond memories of loved ones and try to have an imaginary dialogue with them, almost like Lectio Divina for yeah. a conversation mm. with God. Wow. Use your imagination to dialogue with them and see how God shows up in those conversations. And so he, he starts to do that all around the town with a grandmother, with a grandparent, with an uncle, mm. and his spiritual formation sort of follows on the heels of that. Oh, again, the title of the book is The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. We're talking with the author, Dr. Kelly Flanagan. 
Kelly, you just mentioned that the town that he visits, Bradford, Bradford's Ferry, bears a slight resemblance yes. to your little town of Dixon. Is it too is it too personal to ask how much of this is autobiographical? <laughs> um, definitely not. I've discovered it's one of the more common questions. <laughs> um, the the way that I've come to answer that question to begin with is to say that the if this were a play, the stage setting is a hundred percent autobiographical. The mm. the town, uh, you know, Books on Main is a is a central location in the town, and we have a Books on First here in Dixon. So the stage setting is definitely autobiographical. It's true, so to speak. But everything that's happening on the stage is completely made up. Mm. Um, it's completely imaginary. I might I might put maybe like four to five percent of, of of actual events sort of woven throughout the story in my life. Um, but I, you know, Stephen Pressfield said it. He said, when I write what really happened, people say, nah. But when I pull <laughs> something completely out of thin air, they say, that sounds so real. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually had this sort of surrogate mother figure in my life who started reading the book and she called me and she says, Kelly, I had to put it down. Are, are you in financial trouble? Is, oh, is your wife wow. about to leave you? Oh, like, wow. This feels too... It feels too real. And I said, I, I'm going to take that as a compliment that it feels real. <laughs> Again, the book is called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. The author is Dr. Kelly Flanagan. We'd encourage you, go get uh, the books wherever you get your books. IV, you can get through IVP at IV Press or Amazon, wherever it is you get your books. Again, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. Kelly's going to stay with us. Uh, we're going to pick his brain for his day job. He is a licensed clinical psychologist uh, dealing with uh, – um, you know, mental health issues, dealing with marriages, uh, things we talk about a lot on the show. And so Kelly's going to stay with us as we talk about what's going on in the world around us. Where is it that we can find hope? Going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. I'm an Aubrey and I are thrilled to continue to be joined by Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Uh, Kelly is the author of a new novel called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. We just spent a while talking to Kelly about that. If you miss that, go get the podcast. Go ahead and catch up. Uh, and you can hear all about that book. We'd encourage you to go to uh, get the book, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. But Kelly, we've also had you on in the past. Uh, you're a licensed clinical psychologist. You do work with individuals, with couples. So just to kind of get a landscape of what's going on out there. So let's start really broad. This question may be entirely too broad, but what are you seeing? What are you seeing out there, right? We're, we're two, three years into this COVID thing, whether you think we're done with it or not. And uh, just what are the ramifications? What are you seeing out there right now? So what I'm seeing, and I think probably most of us are seeing this, is that life sort of feels like it's gone back to normal in many mm -hmm. practical ways. You know, I did 20 different things this weekend and never thought twice about, about COVID, um, in part because I had it in August. So it's oh, <laughs> a three-month window. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it was not fun. Um, but I don't think, I think there's a residue of, like, the word I would use is precariousness that is sort of still with us, mm -hmm. sort of stuck to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, the sense that, that, that life is now unpredictable, um, that reality is precarious, that nothing is really certain. Uh, and, and I think that has dramatic ramifications for mm -hmm. us as human beings. Um, you could even say, like, you could define trauma as, I saw the world as basically dependable, and then something happened. And then all of a sudden, my worldview changed completely and yeah. the world doesn't feel dependable anymore. Yeah. So in that sense, I think we've experienced a sort of collective trauma accelerated by 
a lot of the dialogue around all of this. And so we just sort of have this residue of unsafety, I think, mm. that we're carrying around. And again, that has huge ramifications for our own personal functioning, our relational functioning, and our communal functioning. Hmm. And Kelly, I mean, it's, you know, not lost on Brian and I that today's election day and we're having you on and we know mm. that there's quite a bit of, um, I, and maybe I'm just assuming there's quite a bit of stress and anxiety around the election. Brian and I always yeah. try to like, quote unquote, talk people off ledges, like it will be okay. <laughs> it will be okay, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, are you seeing that as a, as a stressor for people? And maybe the more important question is what a What's a word for people who do feel fear, anxiety, et cetera, around a day like today? Uh, you know, I think absolutely. I think people are are feeling it. Um, I think it is. It's sort of folded in to the precariousness of everything. You know, I mean, if there was one thing you could count on in America for 200 years is peaceful elections, peaceful transfers of power, <laughs> in the sense that like you can't even count on that anymore. Um, is is adding to it. So a day like today is, is sort of fraught, I think, for a lot of people. Um, well, when you have Dr. Kelly on, I can't believe I just referred to myself. As a <laughs> I'm more than a little embarrassed by that, but let me continue anyways. Um, that, you know, I'm always going to talk about what I consider to be the fundamental truths of being human, which is that we are born into the world with a soul, and then we build an ego to protect that soul. Uh, mm-hmm. At some point in childhood, all of us, when life became precarious, unpredictable, unsafe, painful, we began to build the shell, um, which again is part of what we're working through in the unhiding of Elijah Campbell, but we begin to build the shell to protect us. And the interesting thing about an ego is that an ego only wants to do two things. It wants to attach to what it wants, and it wants to resist what it doesn't want. Mm-hmm. It wants to attach to things that it considers good and pleasurable and positive, and it wants to resist things that it considers painful, hard, and negative. The soul, on the other hand, is designed to participate in what is, mm-hmm. to find a way to participate with love in what is. And so the reality is when, when we find ourselves in unpredictable and precarious situations, it's what we built our ego for. And so our reaction to those situations is going to be to attach to certain outcomes and to resist other outcomes. And this has a dramatic implication for today's election and for what we're going to be going through in the next week. Um, we, have to, we, we have to be aware, number one, that we have these two parts of us. And we have to be doing the, the spiritual work to be living from our souls that are willing to participate in what is in a loving way, whatever that means. And it requires great discernment rather than attaching to certain things and resisting others. Mm, man, that's really good. Yeah. Uh, Aubrey and I are, uh, like yourself, we're, we're all parents. And I think one of the things that's been most distressing over the last couple of years is to read the articles about the mental health of our children, mm-hmm. of our teenagers, um, yeah. you know, suicide rates and everything. All the, all the news is bad. <laughs> uh, right. And I know you guys do some work with teens. What would you um, I guess I would ask it two parts. What do you see? going on with teenagers as you're what's what's at the core of this and what should we as parents be looking for and doing when we're worried about our kids yeah so you know the teenage years are a time of such rapid growth and learning and transformation especially when it comes to our social development and our capacity to manage stress find resilience in the midst of hardships and failures um I'm going to compare teenagers right now to alcoholics for, for a reason. I swear. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one of the things that you learn in, in working with someone who's had a, an alcohol or a substance addiction of any kind is that typically their, 
their social and personal development sort of got stopped or arrested at the moment where they de- started to depend upon the substance to do life. Mm. And so you, when, when you're working with, say, somebody who's in their mid-30s, who's been using since their early 20s, they're in their early 20s, emotionally, socially, mm-hmm. psychologically, and spiritually. And so a big part of the work is helping to, to close that gap. I mean, our kids you know, are coming out of COVID two years younger, socially and emotionally and psychologically mm-hmm. and wow. personally wow. Than, they, than they look. Wow. And, and we have to be aware of that and, and be ready to do the hard work of help them, helping them close that gap, which is going to take some time, especially because they're teenagers and they, they think they know everything, right. and we don't have everything <laughs> to, add, to, to add in terms of helping them mature. You know, so I think that's, that's part of the struggle right now, mm. you know, is, oh, I'm facing a 16 year old situation, but I feel like a 13 and a half year old. Wow. That's scary. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's anxiety provoking. That's depressing. I don't feel like I've got the tools. And so helping them close that gap is going to be a huge project. Oh, that's, that's mm. such a great insight, Kelly. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I want to, sure. we were talking about your, your book earlier, a new book called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. And I'm wondering just even as we're talking about mental health, in end of 2022, almost 2023, are there themes in the book that you feel like could bring wholeness and healing to people who are struggling? Mm. In our current cultural context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, the, I mean, if, if you wanted to tap into one of the themes of the main character, um, it, it's his core belief that to participate in his life will leave him alone and rejected and without a place to belong. Um, mm. and, and I think that's one of the big question marks for, for humanity at this point is where will I belong? Cause we are designed for belonging. We are mm. designed for participation in community. Yeah. And you see some of the things that we are willing to do to go to extremes right now to feel like we're a part of a community. Um, but that, that sense of community doesn't really provide any real sense of belonging. So what I would mm. hope is that, you know, as people read through this book, I've heard it over and over again. Something that was inside of me, stuck inside of me, started to flow again. Something that was broken is feeling healed. And I'm showing up to my people in a more authentic way. And I'm watching my circles of belonging deepen and get more honest and and, and, uh, more sincere. And so that would be my hope is that what comes out Mm. of this for people is the capacity to show up in a way. It cultivates true belonging. Mm, so ah, that's so good. Again, the book is The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. The author is Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Uh, Kelly, before we let you go, uh, where can people connect with you? Social media, website, whatever else. Where can people connect with you? Yeah, thanks for asking. So drkellyflanagan.com, drkellyflanagan.com is, uh, is my website. You can also go to unhidingbook.com, unhidingbook.com, and that'll take you to the book page on my website and uh, all the, uh, the different ways to connect with it there. Wonderful, man. Again, the book is The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, Dr. Kelly Flanning. Kelly, it's always great to catch up. Congrats. Have a great day, man. Thanks. Thank you, Brian and Aubrey. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening, Election Day. Maybe you've been to the polls or you're on the way to the polls after work. We're praying for you and praying that God is with you. We've talked about the election. We're going to talk about it a little bit more later on in our show. We're joined by two authors, Patrick Miller and Keith Simon. They're also podcasters talking about how we pledge allegiance to Jesus, not to the donkey or the elephant. It's going to give you a lot of wisdom, a lot of perspective 
on the goodness of God in the middle of the election, especially days like this. So be sure to stick around for that. And Brian, I I did want to talk about return to a story that was all over the news last week, the Mm -hmm. attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, Paul Pelosi. And it's interesting. You and I kind of talked about this, how what we were seeing was a little bit shocking. Some people almost celebrating Mm-hmm. the violence against mm-hmm. him. And Russell Moore really kind of went after evangelicals and said some evangelicals aren't endorsing political violence. It needs to stop. This is over at Christianity Today. He says that this this says something about the post-truth um, church. That's Russell mm. Moore's language. What he talks about is how within hours of the Pelosi attack, the typical internet mob spread lies and conspiracy theories about the event some of them too vile and obviously fabricated to even mention here. And um, he tells the story that a friend asked Russell Moore why he was so upset about the allegedly evangelical man who posted the joke about Pelosi's attempted murder. And uh, he, he says to Russell Moore, why are you so surprised, my friend? That guy has shown you who he is. I feel sorry for him. But Russell Moore says that's the point. This is not an isolated incident from one sad angry, extremely online guy. This is an increasing mm-hmm. trend among Christians. Yeah. This idea of sort of celebrating the violence. Um, Brian, you know, I feel like this is, it feels so obvious to me. Christians should not be celebrating violence against anyone, period. Even someone who might be considered your political quote unquote enemy. Why do you think that this is becoming so normalized in this day and age? Yeah, uh, I think social media um, amplifies the extremists. Yeah, um, I think, you know, we've lost. It's a lot easier to make jokes and memes and stuff from behind a keyboard. That's one. And then I, mm. Aubrey, we are just completely tribal. There is and there is no in the right wing world. Uh, in the conservative world, but I'm talking about the really like right, far right world. There's, you know, if you made, you and I do top five lists here, right? If you made a yeah. top five most vilified, hated mm-hmm. people, Nancy Pelosi is going to be on that list for a lot of people, yeah. right? You know, yeah. Hillary Clinton or both Clintons might be there. You know, Nancy Pelosi is going to be on that list. And so I don't know that people were are conditioned to have empathy and sympathy for something like this. Uh, We also peddle in a lot of conspiracy theories. Now, I would say the the Paul Pelosi story Mm -hmm. is there's something strange there and there's something that's not being told. But here's what I would I would then say this, even if there's more to the story, which there may or may not be. That's not licensed to still laugh and mock the fact that the guy got his head bashed in by a hammer. Absolutely Does that make sense? Not. Like, yeah, for some reason, that's the that's the leap we make that even if there was something more to the story, which there may or may not have been, it still doesn't get to the point where it goes. Therefore, we have license to mock it. Therefore, right. we have license as Christians to make memes. Russell Moore uh, held his tongue here and not sharing who it was. And I will, too. But it was someone very high up in the in the uh, Southern Baptist world who made it, who went on Twitter and made a post joking about this guy getting his head beat in. And you're mm-hmm. like. What does that say about your soul? Like it yeah. just doesn't yeah. there's a there's a darkness to us that I understand culturally. I lament it culturally, but I understand yeah. it culturally. 
But I don't understand it in the church unless we're going to say, well, the church is just looking like the culture more and more. Uh, and so yeah. if we're one of those people who go, who gets online and gets personal about things like, well, I'm not going to have sympathy here because it was Nancy Pelosi's husband. I think that says something about your soul and I, where you're at culturally, like even if you – are a conservative right-wing person mm -hmm. who doesn't agree and, in fact, doesn't like Nancy Pelosi's politics at all. You think she's a bad person, all mm -hmm. this stuff. You still shouldn't celebrate her husband getting attacked That's regardless it. of wh what That's the actual it. story is. And the set. I, I don't understand. Maybe I do understand how we've gotten here. It makes sense. Church, church mirrors culture. Culture's yeah. going in this direction. We have this social media world. But I, I do. If you're somebody who, like, found pleasure in the fact that he ended up in the hospital with a fractured skull from a hammer, like, and you're also a Christian. I do think you have to ask yourself some really hard questions. You really yeah. do need to look in the mirror by having sympathy for the guy. You're not going, I therefore agree with Nancy Pelosi's that's politics. It. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Brian. Oh, it's such, that's uh, such a good, yeah. such a good kind of recap of the, the posture around it. Here's what Russell Moore says. Where does much of this violence or the threat of it come from? Here's his answer. Lies. He goes on to say the idea that the election was stolen by a vast conspiracy of liberals is a lie. That elected officials are part of a secret cabal to drink the blood of babies is a lie. <laughs> that Jews are pulling the strings of the globalist order is a lie. That the federal government designed COVID-19 as a hoax is a lie. That your pastor is a cultural Marxist for preaching what the Bible teaches on race and justice is a lie. What's worse, many of the people spreading the lies know them to be lies. And then he goes on to say, God is a God of truth. And he commands against both the bearing of false witness and the taking of human life. Jesus himself said the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Russell Moore's quoting John 8, 44 there. I, I feel like that is um, he's not mincing words there, right? Mm -hmm. Like what you're peddling in is lies. What you're peddling in is violence. And what you're peddling in ultimately when you celebrate that sort of political violence is really the work of the enemy. It's not, it's not for the Christ follower. Like it should not be so for the mm -hmm. Christ follower. And so I think you're right, Brian, it is um, kind of a come to Jesus moment for a lot of us. If we feel excited about the violence done against our quote unquote political enemies, or let's even take this home against your quote unquote family member that you disagree with, or that person who offended you or the person that, you know, betrayed you and you're not their friend anymore. Even if you feel hurt by them, even if you disagree, even if you have decided to part ways relationally, to get to the point where you're celebrating violence against that person is That's not right. from God and really needs to be dealt with before the Lord. Like, God, you, you, this is sin in my life. You got to help me. I mean, I think it's as strong as that. It's sin and the Lord has to do some redemptive work. Yeah, I don't think the answer for the Christian is ever let's let's have violence. Let's go yeah, the yeah. violence route. And, you know, I saw a lot of critique of Russell Moore online, which should also tell you something of this. But I saw a lot of critique where people were like, well, you know, you didn't come out so strong against this. You didn't come out fair or not fair. You could still go. Yeah, but this is wrong. I'm yeah, going to call yeah. out wrong again. And. We're so partisan in our world right now, Aubrey, that I think some people hear us going, it's wrong to mock and laugh at um, what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband and think that like, oh, well, you're just support. No, we're just saying violence is bad. And we yeah, want to. That's all we're saying. 
right. that's all. And and the fact that in the back of my mind, I'm going, that might be a little bit of a controversial take, I think really says something about yeah. the culture we live in. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely absurd. Well, actually, speaking of this topic, kind of our tribalism and how we think about unity in the middle of our division, we're going to be joined by two authors and podcasters, Patrick Miller and Keith Simon. They have a book called Truth Over Tribe pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. Let me just say this. You're going to love our conversation Mm -hmm. with them. So much to learn. So Christ-centered, so godly. Uh, It will be worth your time to stick around. We'll be joined by them when we come back. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. And as we've been saying, today is election day. And so politics are on the mind. But also, how do we as Christ followers, how do we as Christians just process politics, process the election, everything uh, that's front of mind right now. And we thought it would be a great time uh, to talk to to the authors of a book called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Also the host of a podcast of the same name. They are Patrick Miller and Keith Simon. Patrick and Keith, so good to have you guys. How are you? Uh, good to have you on on this election day. Hey, we're, we're doing fantastic. There's nothing better for your nervous system than a good election day. No, no anxiety, <laughs> nothing at all. I'm sure people are glued to their television already trying to figure out what the early voting means. And, oh, you know, yes. we won't know till late tonight, maybe even through the end of the week. So, you know, there's a lot of time for that anxiety to keep ramping up. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And uh, Patrick, let me start with you. I love the title of the book and the podcast, Truth Over Tribe, uh, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb. Uh, it's one of the drumbeats of our show here, but why now? Why is this concept, why a book and a podcast so important now around this topic? I don't care who you ask. Everybody agrees that today feels more tribalized and more polarized than really any other time in my lifetime. Now, I'm not super old, so I can ask older people if they agree, and they often do agree. They say, this feels different even than the 1960s. And why we wrote this book is for a very simple reason. Polarization and tribalism are tearing apart our communities. We have a friend who goes to family reunions. Keith doesn't do that. He's he's Mm. against family reunions. (laughs) 20 years, there's a reason I haven't seen you in 20. (laughs) Exactly. But but our friend, she's a saint. She went to her spouse's family reunion and they've been meeting together for 37 years, 100 people. That's how much his family apparently likes each other. It's impressive. But during the 2016 election, somebody had too many Bush lights and (laughs) he started announcing that he was going to vote for Donald Trump. And then, you know, what happens next? A different family member says, I would never vote for Donald Trump. And under normal circumstances, the uh, the argument probably would have ended there, but thankfully their family has a Facebook group. So the <laughs> oh, no. argument went nuclear on Facebook and it gets so bad that people start boycotting each other's marriages over yeah, their politics. Yeah. A, a young guy about my age died of cancer unexpectedly and people boycotted his funeral in his oh, family because of his politics. Now, when I hear stories like that, I, I just find myself saying, I don't want to live in that kind of world. I want to live in a yeah. world where family can love each other. Look, what happens in my house is more important than what happens in the White House. Right. Mm. Oh, so good. I, I feel like that. I've obviously share that story because that's a microcosm of so many of our communities right now. So many of our families, so many of our tribes, if you will, right now. Um, Keith, let me ask you, why do you think this has happened? Like, why is it so polarized now compared to years ago? 
Well, I think that social media has a lot to do with that, right? Mm. I mean, we all kind of live in a bubble. And one bubble we live in is a social media bubble. And in that bubble, you end up hearing and talking to people who are a lot like you. And of course, we all know by now that the social media platforms are incentivized to make us angry because that anger keeps us on their platform and keeps us scrolling and going from post to post. But it's not just the social media bubble. It's also what has been called the big sort, we tend to live around people now who vote like us, who think like us. Uh, 57% of Americans live in a county that one presidential candidate won by at least 20 percentage points. So that means that uh, we live around people who vote like we do. And when you live in a bubble, you start to kind of uh, think the other people aren't just wrong, they're wicked. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just people that you need to persuade on an issue. These are bad people who you can't trust and you don't want to live in the yeah. same country or the same city as. So I, I think this bubble effect has done a lot of damage. It's it's caused us to talk in echo chambers, to not build bridges with people who are different than us so that we can't respect people who are in a different political party. And therefore, we think it's a crisis if that party wins. Yeah. And and Patrick, as we said, Aubrey and I, we were telling you off air, we're both pastors. So we're very concerned about the church. Uh, What has this political tribalism, this disunity, uh, what's it done in your mind to the church over, say, the last decade? Well, I think it's dividing churches. I talk to pastors across the country and I hear the same story. Uh, This family who I loved, who I spent tons of time with, you know, I was there when their kid was born. I was there when grandma and grandpa died to do the funeral and they left my church because I didn't sound enough like their favorite political pundit. And that's a tragic place for the church to be. And and I'll tell you the reason why Jesus came to tear down the walls that divide us. In the book of Ephesians, uh, the apostle Paul writes that uh, Jesus came to bring together Jew and Gentile. And in that world, of course, Jews and Gentiles, they were never together. They should be separated from one another. But Paul says that because of Jesus's death, that wall was knocked down. And this was important because it proclaimed to the watching world that the things that divided them, they don't divide us in the church. And it showed the watching world that Jesus really is king if he has the power to bring those people together. How much more so is that true in our own political climate? If you have churches where you have people from across the political aisle worshiping alongside one another, being in small groups with each other, doing life together. It tells the world, hey, you guys divide based on politics, but when Jesus is king, we don't divide over those things. We have far more important things in common. We, we believe in his death. We believe in his resurrection. We believe in the forgiveness, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, and that's Amen. what matters. Amen. Oh, such a good message. I mean, always, but especially right now. Keith, so let's dive into the book a little bit. Again, the title is Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Such a great title. What are some of the things, I'm guessing some of what we're talking about, what what are some of the other things you cover in the book? Well, well, the book is laid out in three sections. And the first section just says how tribalism is making us miserable. It's making (laughs) us more anxious. It's creating more enemies. It's dividing families and ruining friendships. The second section is why are we tribal? That there's a sense in which our brain is wired toward tribalism and social media and other things have hijacked that desire to work in communities and taken it a bad direction. And then the last section is how do I get out of tribalism? Like, What is it that Jesus 
Jesus does to show us a better way and a different way. And one of the things that we say is that people are, you know, they are wired, hardwired to be a part of communities. And that's good. Maybe you want to have a team that you root for, or maybe there's a hobby that you kind of build friendships around. But what's happened is, is that sin has affected those communities so that now in political tribalism, we see ourselves as better than other people. And we exclude people who aren't like us, who don't think like us. We see the tribalism has become a rivalry. And what Mm -hmm. Jesus does is he invites us into his tribe. It's not that we can mm-hmm. say to everybody, don't have a tribe because we're, we're, we're created to be in a tribe. It's that Jesus says, come here in my tribe. In my tribe, everyone is welcome. There, you, you can come and join this tribe of people. It doesn't matter your race or your ethnicity or what language you speak or your gender. None of that matters. Your socioeconomic background doesn't matter. Come be a part of this. And then in Jesus's tribe, we are taught to uh, lay down our life for people outside our tribe. In other words, in, in corrupted tribalism, bad form of tribalism, we protect each other and try to, uh, you know, defeat the other tribe. In Jesus's tribe, we're told to love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us. We're told to lay down our life for those who are not like us. So we think that Jesus has the solution to tribalism by inviting us to join his tribe. Oh, the book again is called uh, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. You can also check out the podcast of the same name, Truth Over Tribe. So much good stuff here that we've asked Patrick and Keith to stay with us. Uh, When we come back, we're going to start off by asking them this question. What exactly does unity, especially within the church, even look like? We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. We are thrilled to be joined for a second segment by the authors of a book called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. That is Patrick Miller and Keith Simon. If you've missed the first part of our conversation, go get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Uh, We would love for you to catch up on this. And Keith, let me start with you. Uh, we, we mentioned before, uh, we love the heartbeat of your book about mm-hmm. unity, unity within the church. I think there's a lot of confusion about what unity even looks like in the church. So how would you kind of define what unity looks like specifically in the church? Well, maybe the best place to start is what it doesn't look like. We're not encouraging people to set aside politics. Politics is an important part of our life. And our casting our vote today is important because it's a way for us to love our neighbor. So we're not saying that no one should belong to a a political party or maybe give a donation or vote for a political party. But what we are saying is that our loyalty to Jesus needs to supersede those. So think Mm -hmm. of Jesus's own uh, disciples, his band of 12. He had in that group, Matthew, who is a tax collector. So he is someone who had turned against his people to work for the Roman Empire. And he also had Simon the Zealot, who was a person who was likely to want to overthrow the empire and maybe even to have thought that it was okay to use violence to do so. So he takes these two people from completely different political perspectives. He puts them in his uh, group of disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that Simon and Matthew automatically uh, loved each other, agreed on everything and hugged it out. It probably means that 
that they had a lot of arguments, a lot of questions that they had to, you know, think through together over a, a, a late night session. But what it does mean is that their loyalty to Jesus superseded those and mm-hmm. that they learned to listen to one another, love one another, extend grace to one another, say that we can be a part of the same church, for example, and worship alongside of each other, work to the common good, have our loyalty to Jesus. And then secondly, or maybe even far down the road, maybe it's not even second, maybe it's like 10th, that we can be Republicans or Democrats or yeah. Libertarians or whatever yeah. it is. Oh, it's such, such a good word. Um, Patrick, uh, speaking of it being election day, many Christians going to the polls even over the next couple hours before they close. What's some wisdom or some advice about how the Christians should be um, thinking, posturing themselves as they vote today? Man, that, that's a great question. And part of me hesitates to tell people uh, who to vote for or how to vote. I yeah. can tell you how I think about voting. <laughs> and, 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 and I kind of have two categories that I think through whenever it comes through voting. The first one is this. Um, look, when it comes to my babysitters, I know that I need a babysitter with good character because I am entrusting the most <laughs> precious gift that God has given me to that babysitter. That's my yeah. children. When it comes to my managers or my leaders, I know I need leaders with high character because who wants to work for a manager or leader who is dishonest, who is corrupt, who lies, who cause, who causes dissent? And so if that's true in, in just normal life, how much more so is that true of political life? And so my first question is, does this person have a character commensurate with the office that they want to take. Jesus and the New Testament are very clear. Character matters when it comes to leadership. I can't be a pastor if I'm a big jerk all the time online. (laughs) I can't be a pastor if I'm, if I'm going and and sleeping with all the women at the church. Like there's, there's some serious things I cannot do if I want Mm -hmm. to be a leader inside of the church. And I think that's also true when it comes to civic leadership. But of course, the second question I want to ask is about values. Um, Does this particular leader have values which are suitable? aligned to my own. Of course, you're never going to find a political figure who agrees with you on absolutely every issue. And in the same way, you will never find a perfect political leader in terms of their character. Um, What I'm getting at here is, is it suitable? Is their character enough? And is their values and are their values aligned enough that I can cast my vote for them? But, But maybe the most important thing I can say is this. In Psalm 89, it describes God up on a throne and it says that the angelic beings are around him. And it says, compared to him, nothing else is awesome. He he is so much higher, so much more powerful that they are shaking and quaking just looking at him. And if the angels who, who would cause terror if we saw them, if they shake in the presence of God, how much more so do the rulers of this world? And when I remember that God is on the throne, it totally relieves the anxiety in my heart about the election. Because whatever happens in America, as important as that may be to me, it is not the ultimate truth. The ultimate mm-hmm. truth is that Jesus is king. Amen. Uh, just keep preaching, man. That is good it's stuff like, right there. Know, Thank you for that. Uh, speaking of preaching, Keith, uh, Aubrey and I, again, we've mentioned before, are both pastors. Do you suggest pastors be talking about this openly in their church, on their social media accounts, from the pulpit? What do you suggest for pastors besides doing a book study of your book, you know, maybe a small group study? <laughs> That's the obvious answer. That's just read the our obvious book. answer. <laughs> uh, but what's your word to pastors about how to get at this topic well? 
Well, but it's really sensitive and I understand why pastors want to avoid this. I, I totally get it. But at the same time, when you avoid it, you create a vacuum and you allow cable news or social media pundits to step into that vacuum. And then what happens is, is your people are looking for leadership and direction and they'll find it somewhere. So if the mm-hmm. church isn't willing to step in and speak to these issues, then we've really, I think, done a disservice to our congregation. Now, when we talk to people, we need to be very clear that we're not encouraging them to vote for or against a political party. We need to take it out of that and we need to put it back on more solid theological grounds. We need to root our sermons in the biblical text. Mm-hmm. And and that's hard for people to hear a little bit because they've yeah. been so conditioned to listen to the Bible through their political lens. So quick story is that uh, when George Floyd was murdered, we now say that because he was the, the officer was convicted of a crime, right? So yeah. he's was murdered. And we didn't know exactly all that led up to it that Sunday as we came into the worship service. We just know our people had watched this very traumatic video that we all had, right? And so we had planned to say something about George Floyd. Uh, His death lament that, what we'd all seen, not in honor of the donkey, but in honor of the lamb. Mm. And uh, we were getting hit up on Facebook before that Sunday saying, if you don't say something about this, we're never coming back. <laughs> well, we were going to say something about it. Like I said, right. that's what Jesus calls us to do, to lament. Uh, but right afterwards, we had other people saying, hey, oh, so you think all cops are bad, <laughs> racist or whatever? Yeah. Like, no, yeah. of course, we never said that. So right. I just would say that I, I, I think pastors have to brace themselves. They have to root their, their, their points in scripture. They mm-hmm. should not be partisan. But they should expect some pushback. But that's okay. I think I sat down with people, other pastors on our team did as well, and just walked them through this. And in the context of relationship, I think people are are willing to understand. They're willing to be taught by their pastors that they trust. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good word for pastors. Okay. Um, let's hear about the podcast because we haven't even gotten to tackle that yet. But Patrick, you have a podcast that is connected to the themes of the book. Keith, the two of you have it together. So tell us a little bit about some of the topics that you cover and how we can find it. Well, the podcast really came out of what Keith just said. Um, There are some things that we think should be talked about from the pulpit, but there's a lot of things that maybe belong uh, more in classes and and, in smaller conversations. It's not something that you're going to get up and preach about. And and that's partially because when you're on stage or when you're preaching to people, you don't want to say things that offend Republicans or Democrats and push them away from Jesus. And yet, like Keith just said, we felt this deep need to disciple people in their politics and make sure that, again, they weren't being discipled by the donkey or the elephant, but instead they were being discipled by the Sermon on the Mount, by the teachings Mm -hmm. of Jesus. And so we had this idea of let's start a podcast that is uh, centered around that exact concept where where we explore really tough, challenging cultural issues, the things that everybody else is talking about. But rather than repeating the talking points of one side or the other, we just ask, what's the Bible say? What Mm -hmm. does Jesus say? And as it turns out, it means we kind of offend everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it because our listeners, Listeners, they'll write back, they'll challenge us, they'll say, I don't agree with you on this. And it's created a conversation, not just between us, but also between our listeners and the people that we bring on. Because one of the things we love to do is interview some of the best and brightest Christian thinkers and also secular thinkers on a wide range of topics, whether that's uh, free speech or big tech or LGBTQ issues or race. We talk about all of it in there. But again, we try to do it in a way that keeps Jesus in the center as opposed to uh, the, the, the cable news that you watch or the radio news or whatever it is that's informing your politic. 
Ah, you guys are doing the Lord's work. Keep That's it right. up. Again, <laughs> the book and the podcast are both called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. The authors of that book are Patrick Miller and Keith Simon. Guys, it's wonderful to meet you. Thanks for spending so much time with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.